This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. The forecasted red wave didn't materialize in most places last year, but it did materialize in New York, where there was a sharp swing toward Republican candidates for state and national office, with voter concerns about crime having been a major problem for Democrats in New York City and its suburbs. Even George Santos managed to win a congressional race by eight points in what had been a Democratic district. Recent political trends in New York are a helpful case study for understanding some national issues, not just about the politics of crime after 2020, but also about power struggles between centrist and progressive Democrats and about the drivers of deteriorating Democratic support in Hispanic and Asian communities. So I invited Ross Barkin here to talk with me about that. Ross is a progressive political journalist based in New York. He writes a newsletter on Substack. He's a writer for New York Magazine and a contributor to The Nation. And he's a novelist. He's been doing some very interesting writing about what's happening in New York politics these days. And he's here with me to talk about that. Hi, Ross. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I want to start by talking about James Dolan, because there's an amusing political story that's been happening surrounding him. So first of all, can you explain for people who don't live in New York, don't follow the New York Knicks, who is James Dolan and why is he relevant in New York politics? James Dolan is probably the most powerful owner in New York and maybe professional sports if you take into account what he controls. So he's the owner of the New York Knicks. He's the owner of the New York Rangers. But that, that that's part of his wealth. Um, he also owns Madison Square Garden, which is the preeminent entertainment venue in New York City and therefore in the United States. He owns Radio City Music Hall, of course, also very famous in the Beacon Theater. And, you know, he's he's not a self-made man. He comes from the Cablevision dynasty, uh, which his father hmm. founded. So, you know, he's a, a very wealthy, very entitled, very influential man who, you know, ha- has really had this fiefdom in New York City now for decades and, and has used that to influence uh, politicians to get policy outcomes he wants and to mostly avoid scrutiny. And we can talk about how that's starting to change but pretty much that was the story uh, until 2023 that James Dolan could kind of do whatever he wanted and most politicians would roll their eyes and, and uh, move on with their day. Well, and he also is kind of like ostentatiously a prick. Um, yes. Most notably in this recent instance, he's been using facial recognition technology at these venues, including Madison Square Garden and Radio City Music Hall, in order to identify and remove his enemies from the facilities that he controls. And so what that has meant in practice is if anybody sues MSG, sues his company, he prohibits any employee of the law firms involved in those lawsuits, even if it's a large law firm and you're some lawyer who has no involvement with litigation related to James Dolan's empire. The one that really got all over local news here is there's some associate from some law firm in New Jersey and some other lawyer at her firm had a lawsuit related to Lavo, the nightclub, which is also part of James Dolan's empire. And so she's at Radio City Music Hall to see the Rockettes uh, with her daughter's Girl Scout troop. And the cameras pick her up and these security guards come over and remove her from Radio City Music Hall. So she has to walk around Midtown for a couple hours while her kid and her kid's friends see the Rockettes. And so this is the sort of thing that you do just, I guess, just because you can. But it's also the sort of thing that ends up generating a lot of negative press. And so this is basically James Dolan, like, very ostentatiously poking his finger in the eyes of various people for no really important business reason of his – 
at the same time that he has various matters before the state. And this has caused an interesting confluence of sort of angry sports fans who are mad about James Dolan and his mismanagement of the Knicks, and then him sort of causing himself problems before the state legislature. The recklessness is remarkable, and and, and to me does call to mind Donald Trump uh, when it, when you think yeah. of sort of self sabotage and arrogance. I, I think there's a few things here which which you put well. You know, one is that this abuse of facial recognition technology is unusual, even in the domain of paranoid, power hungry sports <laughs> owners, right? And 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 you think of who owns these sports franchises. They're you know billionaires who are used to behaving without any consequence. Uh, but but Dolan has taken it to a different level in in wantonly you know, punishing his enemies through the use of this technology and now is caught up in litigation um, a, as he is being sued by um, these attorneys and also facing scrutiny from the state attorney general's office who's looking into whether he violated anti-discrimination laws. You have uh, Democratic state legislators who are carrying bills now to ban this use of facial recognition technology. I've been told by some legal minds what Dolan is doing is illegal because you can't kick out a paying customer unless they violated the terms of services that are dictated on your ticket when you make that purchase. So, you know, if you do violate Mm -hmm. those terms of services, if you're unruly, if you start a fight, you know, if you're publicly intoxicated, you can be removed. But as far as I know, and I haven't gone to a Knicks game in a while, it's not part of the deal that when you buy a ticket, you can't criticize James Dolan. And there there have been reports that even people... (laughs) who've like written on Facebook, like sell the team have been targeted by this facial recognition tech. You know, it's, it's, right. it's quite remarkable. Uh, and so, yes, he's someone who has gone above and beyond in his naked recklessness, let's put it, and willingness to, to fight now with the political establishment. There's talk in the legislature about prohibiting this sort of use of facial recognition technology. I guess there's they'd have to clean up the law to make clear that sports venues are covered by these restrictions, although I guess Radio City Music Hall is not a sports venue to begin with. The funny thing here is that, again, this is sort of recreational bullshit that James Dolan is engaged in. And so while I'm sure he'd be unhappy to have the state prohibit him from using the technology in this way, it wouldn't really impact his business interests that much. But then he also has this very large business concern before the state, which is that Madison Square Garden has an extremely valuable property tax exemption. Mm -hmm. And that's a property tax exemption that goes back to a period that that sort of still haunts New York politics in a way more than it should. Like back in the 1980s, everything was trying to leave New York City. You had corporate headquarters constantly trying to move away. I mean, there's there's a building in Rockefeller Center that used to be the Exxon building. Exxon is now, of course, headquartered in Texas. And there was that this was a big trend in the 70s and 80s. There were huge concerns about rising crime in the city and things were either moving to the suburbs or other states. States, and you had whole areas of public policy around basically causing businesses to stay here in New York City. As you wrote in your recent piece on James Dolan, nobody is concerned that if you got rid of this property tax break on Madison Square Garden, that the Knicks or the Rangers would move out of Manhattan. I mean, as you, you make the point, we've tried having professional basketball in New Jersey, the Nets, and that was not a, a financial success. So basically, the, the, the reason it's interesting that James Dolan continues to poke people in the eye like this is, why does the legislature need to continue? that tax break that he has when the economic rationale that existed for that in the 1980s doesn't really apply there, there is literally no policy rationale for Madison Square Garden not paying property taxes for the last 40 years. And, and the, the exemption dates back to 1982. As you said, out of the shadow of the fiscal crisis in the 1970s, the city nearly goes bankrupt. And this is 
cast a surprisingly long shadow over New York uh, for almost, you know, now the last 50 years. And you still see, you know, politicians behaving in such a way out, out of fear that these times can return or, you know, certainly they are always being warned against. But going back to, you know, the fact that the New York City loses about $43 million a year uh, from property taxes, it should be collecting on Madison Square Garden. Why has this abatement continued? Well, the political answer is for a long time, Dolan had a lot of support among powerful Democrats and Republicans in the state. His close ally for many years was Andrew Cuomo, who was the governor for over 11 years and was probably the most powerful figure in New York since Nelson Rockefeller in the uh, 1960s and 70s. Dolan was a prolific donor to Cuomo. They were both Billy Joel fans. Uh, they would pal around together. Dolan sat on his advisory committee for reopening the city after COVID. And the other key ally that Dolan also had for many years, who's gone as well, was Sheldon Silver, who is the Speaker of the State Assembly for two decades, was also a New York Rangers fan. And in addition to saving the tax abatement and blocking bills that would repeal it, did Dolan a major favor when he killed plans in the 2000s for the West Side Stadium. This was maybe before the time of some listeners, but Michael Bloomberg, the billionaire mayor of New York City, who usually got what he wanted, but not always, wanted to bring to where Hudson Yards is now a football and Olympic stadium. And this was going to be the centerpiece and Olympic bid in 2012. And the New York Jets would have played there. And the New York Jets, yes. It would have been for the New York Jets and the Olympics. And James Dolan didn't like another stadium, entertainment venue being next to Madison Square Garden, saw it as competition, wanted it dead. Sheldon Silver, unilaterally pretty much because it needed state approval for various reasons, killed the project. And Dolan got, got his way. So he's had allies in government for a long time. You know, Republicans in the legislature who ran the Senate too for a while had no problem taking Dolan donations and, and, and you know, leaving him alone, so to speak. And so this has been this has been the state of affairs, right? And so the point I'm getting to is that these actors are removed from the scene, but just because the actors are gone doesn't suddenly mean magically fingers are snapped and a bill moves through the legislature and you get a repeal and we move on. Unfortunately, in Albany in particular, things take a while. And if Dolan were a wiser billionaire, he would not be recklessly using facial rec recognition technology to punish anyone and everyone. And he would leave it all alone and, and, and let the legislature keep ignoring him. Instead, now, because he is such a focal point and such an easy villain, it would not surprise me that in the near future, there is more movement among Democrats in the legislature to strip the tax abatement away. Now, the big question is, will Kathy Hochul go along with it? Kathy Hochul, of course, Andrew Cuomo's successor not like Cuomo in, in terms of his sociopathic tendencies, but certainly politically not so different. She took a lot of money from Dolan and his family for her reelection. They spent something like a half million dollars on her. So I'm very curious to see how far that money goes and, and where this all ends up. But the point is, any other billionaire would, would wisely not be kicking up this kind of storm. But James Dolan cannot help himself. The, the thing
thing I find interesting about that is and we'll talk about Kathy Hochul's political difficulties in a moment. And she had a closer than expected reelection winning by about six points. But one thing she did very well is she raised a ton of money for her reelection. Half a million dollars, I, I suppose, is a lot of money. But Kathy Hochul doesn't really need James Dolan, right? Why should that be enough to buy her? It feels like this is sort of an easy political win for her that she can stand up to this billionaire who nobody really likes. It could be an area of common ground between her and progressives who she's had somewhat strained relations with. And if she doesn't get a half million dollars next time, she'll be fine. It's an easy political win. I was on a actually a, another show discussing this not too long ago, and I made a similar point. And the point was made to me, and it made me think a bit, well, how would her other wealthy donors take it if Hochul went against Dolan even after he put in this kind of investment? You know, if you're Kathy Hochul and you deal with the real estate industry, for example, or Wall Street, and you're, you know, yes, raising, you know, 40 some odd million dollars from them, and they see that Dolan could not buy her off, so to speak, would other donors in the future be hesitant about giving to her? Now, I would push back on that point, and you might as well, and say, she's still the governor, she's still the incumbent, wealthy people need favors done, the real estate industry needs the state of New York, needs favor from the state of New York. So so, so the idea that that she could squash Dolan and, and lose other sources of revenue, I think is a bit far fetched. But I mean, the reality in politics, yes, even though she raised many millions of dollars and and maybe collectively Dolan through the family, through everyone else, if it was a half million, maybe it was more, um, you know, because they have there's both the individual donations, there's the outside, he has this outside pack that spends money too. So so maybe it adds up to somewhere around in, in the ballpark of a million. Yes, she can, she can get by. She can get by without that money for sure. She can survive without that money. And Dolan, in theory, could have been up for grabs. He's supported Republicans and Democrats yes. over the years. And so it's notable that he supported her rather than the competitive Republican that she that she was running against. I mean, but the other thing there is that in addition to she's the incumbent and the donors need her, the other thing is that she, she's the incumbent and she has a record. And so she's doing things right now. I think it's really interesting, the announcement that we've had from her as we're starting up the, the budget process. New York does its budget earlier than most states because our fiscal year starts on April 1st. Most states start on July 1st. There's some very aggressive housing reforms that Hochul is trying to do. I think it's it's going to be difficult in the legislature in much of the same way. It's sort of similar to some of the things that have been done in California in recent years, where she's going to be trying to have the state preempt local zoning, require the allowance of dense development around transit stations in suburbs that have been resistant to multifamily development. But that's that's an interesting area politically for her, because at least some of this is appealing both to political progressives and to certain business interests who share an interest in causing more housing development to happen in the New York area. And so that, for example, would be something that would make real estate happy. Yes. So the the upzoning politics, I think, are very good overall for Kathy Hochul, because it's something the real estate industry absolutely wants. The opportunity to build in the suburbs is very exciting for any developer, you know, for-profit, non-profit, it's just an opportunity. And it is a, it's a progressive housing policy. And, and I think you've seen that broadly accepted, you know, from the socialist left to the moderate left that we have to build more housing. And just about everyone can get behind the idea of building taller buildings near transit stations in suburbs that haven't seen development in 50, 60, 70 years. And you top that off with the fact that the way the elections turned out last year were actually very favorable to the housing movement. And so something I wrote about because 
most of the Democrats who lost in the state legislature in particular were on Long Island. And in Mm -hmm. the past, to build a majority in the state Senate, it had to run through Long Island. That was the conventional wisdom. You couldn't do it without Long Island. But they did now. They were able to do it without Long Island. Something to note for, for people who aren't in the New York area that, you know, obviously suburbs go out in three directions from New York City, but Long Island of the sort of the three areas of suburbs has the most anti-development politics of the three areas. New Jersey actually adds a lot of housing units, but Long Island in particular has been an area where you have a lot of air, places that have good transit connections to the city where it's been especially difficult to build multifamily housing. So that would be sort of the epicenter. If you're going to cram down an upzoning, you would basically be cramming down Westchester to some extent, but it's it's mostly a Long Island story. It's it's a Long Island, Nassau and Suffolk counties, which are quite populous and quite sprawling. And, and are when Americans think in the popular imagination of what the suburbs are, you know, you look at Long Island and that's kind of the, the platonic ideal, so to speak. And I went to school on Long Island. So I know firsthand if one wanted to live off campus at Stony Brook University, almost impossible. You, you had to find an illegal basement apartment. There's no such thing as, as finding an, an apartment house, you know, a six-story building somewhere. Didn't exist. It was all single-family homes, and you had to illegally live in someone's basement if you chose to do that. So the politics of it for a long time were extremely hostile to Democrats and Republicans alike who wanted to build housing. One, Republicans ran the state Senate for almost 50 years. The backbone of the Republican majority in New York was on Long Island. That majority is gone. Democrats obviously control the legislature now. And the good news for the pro-housing side is the Democrats built their majority thanks to redistricting and, and the quirks of the midterm last year without Long Island. They did it through New York City, through Westchester, through to an extent some of the Hudson Valley and upstate. So the stars are really aligned where Hochul can go forward and not risk losing seats in the legislature. Now, a funny thing, if you think about national imperatives, right? House Democrats want to win back Congress in 2024. I'm very interested to see how DCCC types react to this because Democratic House candidates on Long Island are not going to be pro-development and may suffer because Hochul and Democrats are pushing what is very good policy, but is not politically beneficial policy for Democrats competing in these kinds of swing districts. Now, that may change over the years, but I would say in the immediate short term, if I'm a Democrat running in 2024 in a House seat in Nassau or Suffolk County, I am very wary of Hochul's agenda, though, again, it's the correct agenda. But the short term politics for the House seats out there, I would say a little sketchier. You mentioned that there were significant Democratic losses in the state legislature on Long Island. There are four federal congressional districts on Long Island. Republicans won all four of those districts, including two of them that have a pretty strong Democratic tilt. One of those is George Santos, um, who, who everyone nationally has, has gotten to learn a lot about over the last few weeks. Can we talk about what, what went wrong for Democrats in this election? Because through most of the country, Democrats sort of had a surprisingly good night, but they got shellacked in New York. And it's interesting, the shellacking was almost entirely downstate. I and mean, Republicans win upstate New York, and Republicans improved a little bit in upstate New York from the prior election. But it's really mostly that things deteriorated for Democrats in New York City and the New York City suburbs. Why did that happen? 
The short answer is crime and, and crime increases in New York City, which were both tangible and hyped by the press. I, I think both things are true. I, I think there's undoubtedly since the pandemic, there's been an uptick in most types of crime. Murders and shootings actually fell in 2022 from 21, but they're still elevated from 2018, 2019. You know, we, we went through mm -hmm. a period in New York City where crime historically was quite low until about the start of 2020, and it's gone up, still lower than it was in the 1990s. But again, that's no solace to people who are living through this sort of crime. And I think what's, what's different about this and why it gets to the vibe, so to speak, is it feels a bit more random. I mean, this isn't mm -hmm. this isn't a, a good thing, and this is really more of a psychological, sociological thing, but I think a lot of voters are comfortable if they feel crime is contained to certain areas, to poorer areas. They can kind of write it off mentally. They can say, well, the gun violence is in this neighborhood, that neighborhood. I just won't go there. And there's been a feeling, I think, during the pandemic that, well, you can be shoved on a train anywhere. You can be in Times Square and all of a sudden, you know, a mentally disturbed person attacks you. You could be stabbed. That fear is real. And, and you take that fear with a very aggressive and strong media market, a media market that for non-New Yorkers is like nothing else in America. And, and I, mm -hmm. I don't travel a ton, but when I do, uh, it's still amazing to me how diminished other media markets seem compared to New York City, where you still have you know, three to four aggressive daily newspapers, a broadcast media market that is still quite strong. A lot of people are still watching, you know, four broadcast stations plus New York One. You know, you have radio. This is a very palpable media market that is covering stuff. I mean, crime gets covered if there's a shooting, if there's a stabbing, if there's a murder, it's there. So you have the real statistics, the real uptick, plus saturation coverage, right? And I think in other states, you don't get that as much. It was interesting to watch like Pennsylvania where, you know, Fetterman was able to win despite Oz demagoguing on crime. It just didn't seem like the crime attacks in Pennsylvania stuck, but in New York they did. And for people in the suburbs, you know, especially in Long Island, New York City holds this very interesting place in their imagination. Again, I know this. I, I grew up in Brooklyn. I, I still live in Brooklyn. I went to school on Long Island, so I know a lot of people on Long Island. And sometimes I, I feels like in the suburbs, particularly, there's this siege mentality towards New York City where you know things are going wrong there. It's kind of the den of sin, and hmm. we can't go there anymore. It's not safe. And so you really saw you know, where did Lee Zeldin do best? Where did Republicans do best on Long Island and the Hudson Valley? These places that are very close to New York City, but not in New York City. And, and, I, and I think Democrats had no compelling counter narrative. And I think that speaks to your question a bit too, where Republicans are running hard on you know bail reform, causing all crime, which I disagree with. But Democrats are, are saying nothing in response, really. They're saying either crime's not real, it, or it's not that bad, or we're working on it. And Republicans have this very devastating and direct message that in no way had any rebuttal.
Yeah, I think I think this is what was was different in New York. It wasn't just that crime was up. It was that there there was a story about why it was Democrats fault that crime was up, that there was this bail reform law that had made it more difficult in certain cases to hold people who'd been arrested without bail. And the story was this is why crime is up. They keep sending these people out onto the streets. And Democrats have a story about how, you know, well, that that's really not why. And they have statistics about, you know, the infrequency with which people who are released under these conditions, the infrequency with which they get rearrested. But what was missing was a story of, okay, well, if that's not why crime is up, then what is the reason that crime is up and and what are you doing about it? There wasn't an alternative, you know, there was this sort of vague, we're working on it that you described, but there there wasn't an alternative theory of the case because the the spike in crime is real and they sort of needed, they needed another account of what they were going to do about that and what the drivers were. There also was no good public explanation of what bail reform is and does, what the 2019 laws do and don't do. Uh, And I do blame Democrats in the legislature for that, especially as time goes on, where they passed these bills in 2019. When Cuomo was governor, by the way, it's kind of funny that that he sort of alighted this backlash. Of course, he resigned in 2021, but he, he, not Hochul, was the one who, who signed these bills into law. And there's just no effort, you know, certainly there's no effort from Cuomo when he was governor and no effort from Hochul, but no effort from Democrats in the state legislature or, or from, you know, I think, community leaders, uh, anyone really to explain these laws and to offer that counter narrative. It just didn't exist. It was kind of this vacuum. We did this. We think it's good. Crime is an issue, but maybe it's not an issue. Meanwhile, Republicans are unequivocal. And yes, it's a very simple, direct thing to say. Cops are, are being handcuffed. DAs are being handcuffed. These laws made things worse. I'll get elected and I'll change the law. Very simple message. And you had Hochul really struggle throughout the campaign to formulate any kind of response. There's that debate moment she had where I'm trying to remember what she said exactly, but you know. It was something about like, you're so obsessed with this or that sort of thing. You're so obsessed with this. Why do you keep talking about it, Lee Zeldin? And and you and I remember yeah. watching that and just going, oh, that that's not that's not what you say, you know, a couple of weeks out from election day. <laughs> not a good idea. So yeah, it, it was this unique sort of confluence of crime was a real issue. It's something you can't dismiss. The rise in in hate crimes against Asian Americans in particular, and we can talk about the strong turn of Asian Americans toward the Republican Party in New York, which is very real. You you take all that together and the fact that Democrats in no way were messaging against it, where if you look at other states, they were. I did a piece from New York Magazine about this, how, again, going back to Fetterman in Pennsylvania, you know, owning his record and then also cutting ads with police um, you know, talking about, you know, here's what I did as, as mayor of Braddock and here's how I'm keeping people safe. You just didn't really have that in the Democratic side at all. Hmm. And and so let, let's talk a little bit about the Asian vote in the city, because the losses of seats largely happened in the suburbs. Sean Patrick Maloney, who had been the chairman of the DCCC, lost his district in Westchester County and Rockland County, north of the city. But you had a really significant deterioration within New York City. Now, very often this meant that, you know, you had a candidate who would have won by 30 points and instead they win by 17 points and that sort of thing. So it's Democrats don't actually lose the seat. But you did have there's the, there's a seat in Brooklyn, a heavily Asian district where you had a surprise win by an Asian Republican candidate over a very long time incumbent. And then when you look at the statewide governor's race, 
Kathy Hochul actually lost more ground in the city than in the suburbs in terms of her statewide margin. Now, more, more people live in the city than the suburbs, but it's the, the deterioration very much went within the city, and it went especially in heavily Asian and Hispanic neighborhoods in the city. And so, I mean, I, the crime is, I, I think, central to that story. There's also some education policy issues that I think have been an issue for, for Asian voters in New York. Why, why are Democrats losing ground with these communities? So with the Asian community in particular, it's too big issues, and those are crime and education. And I can get into the education piece in a moment. Uh, It's important to keep in mind, you know, Brooklyn, New York, very deep blue, no doubt. So where I live in Brooklyn now, I have a Republican state assemblyman. And Hmm. to the east of me, the next two districts over are now represented by Republicans. You you had, you know, Mm -hmm. within this, you know, blue county, the entire southern half now has Republican state legislators. And that has not happened in many, many decades, if, if ever, you, you have you know this band of red going from where I live in Bay Ridge all the way out east in Brooklyn, you know, to the, the unfashionable parts of Brooklyn people don't think about too much. Um, hmm. and, and yes, like as you said, you, know, you had a, a 36-year incumbent Democrat in southern Brooklyn lose to an Asian Republican. You almost had an Asian Democrat running for a new open state Senate seat that is plurality Asian in Southern Brooklyn lose to a white Republican. Very close. Hmm. And that was because Hmm. there were many Asian American voters not voting on identity, but voting party line, going into the voting booth and saying, I'm going to vote Republican down the line. So like why that happened, right? Crime, undoubtedly, you know, major, major factor. You you have these like working, you have these working class immigrant communities who are very concerned about hate crimes, concerned about quality of life. The attacks on Asian Americans have gotten a lot of attention, certainly in in the the English language media, but in WeChat, in Asian media in particular, and Asian Americans in New York have their own robust. Chinese language media ecosystem, in that ecosystem, crime is covered all the time. Any type of crime Mm -hmm. against an Asian American will get covered and will get discussed in WeChat. So that was a big part of it. I think also Lee Zeldin campaigned there. I mean, the Hochul campaign is very listless, I would argue, when it came to New York City, didn't spend time in these communities at all, took them for granted. Zeldin went there. And the other big part of this is education. This is somewhat unique to New York, but also not so the unique part is the battle over the specialized high schools in New York City. In New York, there are a number of public schools where you take a standardized test to get in. That's all you do. You take the test, it's pass-fail. And these schools have become overwhelmingly Asian in the last 10 to 20 years. These are schools you know, that are quite elite. Many of their graduates go on to either Ivy Leagues or very good state schools. They you know, have rosters like Nobel Prize winners, all, all those kinds of things. They're very desired, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to pass a test to get there. There's no other way to get there. Extracurriculars don't matter, all these other things. You pass the test in, out. So, you know, Stuyvesant High School, the most elite, is something like 70% Asian now. So there was a push under Bill de Blasio and, you know, Democrats at that time. Eric Adams briefly supported this push and backed away to try to diversify these schools, get more Black and Hispanic students in there. The idea of de-emphasizing the test or getting rid of it altogether was uh, advocated for. It did not happen, but this caused a great backlash in the Asian community. Long story short, in essence, you have a you know working class immigrant community that looked at the Democratic establishment and said, "Wait a second, you're saying because we are doing really well and in getting into these schools, now these schools must change." 
And now I would say the debate's more nuanced than that, but that's what it was. I think it's worth noting that the white student share in, in at Stuyvesant and some of these other schools is sort of in line with the, the fraction of the city population yes. that's white. Yes. And so basically, to the extent that you're talking about disproportionate representation in these schools, you're talking more or less entirely about the idea that you would have fewer Asian students in these schools uh, in order to have more black and Hispanic students in the schools. And I think Asian voters accurately perceive that as a, as a zero-sum matter. Yes, because you, know, you would see this sort of jujitsu done in the press, for lack of a better word, where they talk about um, lack of representation or disproportionate representation. And they would say the white plus Asian population of Syverson, the Bronx High School of Science right. is XYZ. When, you know, yes, really the white population in these schools is pretty much in line with New York City. A lot of white students will, will some will go to either neighborhood schools, they'll go to private school, or they'll go to these schools. But yes, it's the Asian population that's overrepresented. Let's be very clear. Uh, there's no other population that is greatly overrepresented. So when you, you go into like, you know, 2018, 1920, you know, the start of the so-called awakening, the DEI initiatives too, you know, all of that I think has created a backlash in the Asian community. The battles over affirmative action, the battles over, you know, who's gets into Harvard now, you know, I think all of that is circulating and Asian voters have become very cognizant of that. And what was a safe democratic vote through the entire Obama era and probably through most of the 2010s has really strongly shifted in the last, I'd say, two to three years. I'm not convinced it's just going to suddenly shift back. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's worth noting that these education policy issues vary across jurisdictions, but we've seen echoes of this in other places in the country. I mean, most prominently, the San Francisco school board fight was in significant part about very similar issues, eliminating a, a, a test for admission to Lowell High School, which was the big magnet high school there in San Francisco. And we're seeing some of this similar deterioration in both Asian and Hispanic uh, neighborhoods in, in California. Um, obviously, Hispanic voters in Florida have been an enormous problem for Democrats. Democrats, not just Cubans, but also non-Cuban Hispanics in Florida. So I think the, these are national phenomena. One thing that, that's interesting about as Democrats try to figure out what to do about this, you have a very prominent politician in New York who has been sounding some of the talking points about this that, you know, you would expect from Democrats who are trying to retrench and appeal to voters who are concerned about crime, appeal to Asian voters who might be concerned about some of these, these uh, educational admissions issues, and that's Mayor Eric Adams. And the funny thing is that, you know, rhetorically, he has made some of those repositionings, but arguably that's actually been a problem for Democrats in New York because you have Eric Adams implicitly or explicitly talking about things that Democrats are doing wrong at the state level in New York, pushing back on on state level Democrats about bail reform and and feeding the, the Republican narrative about bail reform being the key problem there. It's not clear that Eric Adams has really fixed any of that for Democrats other than himself. No, and I don't know if he's fixed it for himself because he himself is not very popular. There's a Quinnipiac poll just came out the other day and he had a negative approval rating, which I looked it up, you know, Bill de Blasio at this point in his tenure was still plus nine approval in Quinnipiac and now Adams is already underwater. So yes, Adams' tact here has not helped other Democrats and has not helped himself. You know, there's a lot of talk in 2021 how you know he himself said he'd be the face of the Democratic Party. I think there was this kind of pundit interest in him, but he simply is not popular 
in New York City. And his unpopularity is being driven by Republicans and independents. So right. he's not gotten any credit from Republicans and conservatives for pivoting this way, which maybe speaks to the polarization of our period, too, where it's getting harder and harder to distinguish yourself from a party or from a brand. And then some of it is just his own politics. You know, I, again, I've been critical of Adams in part because I think, you know, he's been right to speak to anxieties around crime. He's also the mayor who last year was saying the subway has never been more dangerous in my tenure. You know, he was a former transit cop in the 1980s and 1990s. And he said, the subway has never been more dangerous. The city is awful. The city, you know, these sort of things, if you're the mayor of a city, you you also have to be a booster for the city, right? You have to speak with some level of nuance. You have this bullhorn. You can say we have these challenges, but look, you can still ride the subway and be safe 98 to 99% of the time. Let's be honest. You know, I ride the subway all the time. that's not a very reassuring no, it's uh, not. number there. Like, you know, one out of 50 subway it's rides. Is... But, but if you're a politician, <laughs> you have to massage it in a way to, you know, again, boost yeah. your brand and boost the city's brand. I would say I would take that over the subway's never been more dangerous, whatever he said. Right. I'm, I'm trying to remember, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, stuff like that where when you're running for office, you can do that all you want, right? Adams won a campaign, you know, in part because in 2021, the Democratic primary electorate was most concerned about crime. And and Yang talked about crime too. So did Catherine Garcia. This was the overriding narrative and it was tangible and Adams won. The tricky thing is when you govern, you lived by that sword. And if you don't fix it, or if you don't fix the perception of it, you're going to die by that sword. And that's his problem right now. What's the way forward for Democrats in New York here? And I asked that in part looking looking at the what's going on in Albany and the division that exists between Kathy Hochul and Democrats in our state legislature who are quite a bit to her left. One of the, one of the big inroads the progressives have had is they've really picked up a lot of seats in the legislature in New York. So in addition to having a Democratic majority in the state Senate, which New York had this weird politics for decades where somehow Republicans always had a majority in the state Senate. Now Democrats control the legislature, but it's also a farther left set of Democrats than it had been previously. And, and you were writing recently about how those Democrats do not seem to have that much ability to push Kathy Hochul around, maybe even less than they had with Andrew Cuomo, who you would have thought of as a more headstrong figure. But he faced more intimidating primary challenges from progressive Democrats than Kathy Hochul did, who ended up winning quite soundly in her primary. So what is and and I think, you know, you sort of get into, you know, why why doesn't Hochul feel compelled? Why doesn't she feel pushed around by them? I, I think one answer probably is Kathy Hochul looks at this bail reform law that was a huge political problem for Democrats that she didn't sign, that wasn't her idea. I assume she blames progressives for the fact that she did so poorly in this election because they came up with this issue that ended up being such a big area of difficulty for her. Yes, I imagine she does. Uh, I would say to an extent, progressives can push her around as, as we're seeing with this fight over the chief judge of the Court of Appeals, who which is the highest court in New York state. And and the the short story of that is governors nominate like they do, like presidents do to the Supreme Court, judges to the Court of Appeals, the state Senate confirms them. And this has never been an issue in the past, you know, 40, 50 years and progressives and and some moderates in the Democratic controlled Senate stopped Hochul's nominee for being not being sufficiently liberal. So they have been 
willing to stand up to her and do have leverage. But the issue is Hochul has not backed down or put forward another nominee, and she is still committed to further weakening the bail reform measures of 2019, giving judges just more discretion, the so-called dangerousness standard. So Hochul is not necessarily intimidated by them. Though there's going to be a very interesting push and pull in this upcoming budget season and after that where progressives do have a if not a majority of of members of of the caucus, you know, in the body so to speak, they have a lot of say in the state senate and to an extent a say in the state assembly. But Hochul herself, yes, does not necessarily look at the 2022 election and go, hey, I have to listen to progressives war. She had a primary challenger like Cuomo did twice. The primary challenger, Jamani Williams, who'd run against her when she ran for lieutenant governor, did really badly. I think progressives underrate how bad he did. He got 19% of the vote. That is a very poor showing, particularly when Cuomo's primary challengers each broke 30%. So there, there's this issue where you had an election where clearly there was a backlash to some progressive policies, certainly around bail reform. The interesting part of this, though, is Hochul going into the election last year did weaken the bail laws and got no political benefit from it at all. So you can look at it one of two ways, right? You can say, hey, Kathy Hochul, um, what she's doing, it's logical because Lee Zeldin almost won. The Democratic primary electorate chose her overwhelmingly. So, of course, she would double down on weakening bail. Right. right. Of course, you tack right. At the same time, she got no credit for tacking right last year. So why bother? She just won a full term. Maybe just do what you think is right. Now, maybe she, this is what she thinks is right. You now, she's a you know, Buffalo area Democrat. She doesn't really come from a progressive or liberal hotbed, so to speak. So she may just be pursuing the policies she believes in. So it's just kind of interesting. We're in a very interesting place in New York where there is a vacuum of power. You know, Cuomo was so dominant for so many years, and now he's been removed from the scene. The legislature has a lot more clout than it used to have under Cuomo. Hochul herself is still finding her way, though I think becoming, you know, increasingly emboldened. There are various power centers in the city and state now. There are various factions. There are moderate Democrats. There are progressive Democrats. There are socialist Democrats. So in a way, it's all kind of up for grabs right now where, you know, each side is pushing back on the other. Each side is asserting itself. There's going to be a fight over charter schools in the state budget too, which is something to keep an eye on. Hochul is trying to expand the number of charter schools in the state. Democrats in the legislature say it's a non-starter. We're not doing it. Is Hochul going to push them to the limit and try to get it anyway? We're going to see. Again, it, it's it, it's all up for grabs right now, I think. I mean, it's, it's interesting going back to what we talked about at the beginning with housing policy and this idea that, that Kathy Hochul and progressive Democrats, one thing that they might team up on is to basically impose zoning policies on Long Island that will be very unpopular on Long Island. Because it's possible to imagine this outcome for Democrats, where basically Kathy Hochul keeps trying to push to the right on some of these initiatives, particularly around criminal justice, and that demoralizes progressives. But she can't actually get that out of the legislature. And even if she does 
does get some tinkering with it, like she got last time, that won't convince Republicans and independents who are upset about crime that they've really changed things a lot. So she may get political credit neither from the left nor from the center. And then she's going to do this housing policy thing that is worthy, but seems likely to alienate a substantial portion of the electorate. And Democrats do need votes on Long Island in order to win elections in New York. All of that seems to add up to the possibility of, you know, putting Democrats in an increasingly precarious position in the state. And, and New York is New York is very different from California. These housing policies are similar to the California housing policies. But California is a much bluer state than New York at this point. Gavin Newsom just won re-election by 18 points, not by six. And so I guess, you know, the the hope, if you're Kathy Hochul, is that the crime just falls, that we had abnormalities related to COVID and the aftermath of the George Floyd protests. And some of these effects were fundamentally temporary and then even, even if you don't change anything, things will just get some, somewhat better. So it won't be a central issue in elections in 24 or especially 26. But it doesn't seem like a considered strategy to become more popular. No. And I think, yes, the, the simplest and, and most you know, boring cop out of all of this is for Democrats in particular, hope crime just gets better. And <laughs> the reality is there's no consensus one way to lower the crime rate, you know, speaking just from a macro perspective, no one mayor, no one governor can implement a set of policies that will then overnight or within a year just send the crime rate down, right? You know, th these things often function on a national scale, sometimes even an international scale. So it's tough, right? It, it, it's tough. I, I think in a way, you know, Hochul wants to do more on crime because she looked at the outcome of the elections. Though she'll have four years, she doesn't have to worry about facing the electorate again until 26. Now, Democrats in Congress have a very different calculus. They have to worry about it winning on Long Island. Democrats in the state legislature, though, again, are in this interesting place where they got a veto-proof majority without Long Island. So yeah. I think I think if Hochul, Hochul has to decide what she cares about most, if I were her... I would be thinking, you know, what do I want most out of this year in this legislature? If housing policy is number one, if upzoning is number one, find a way to get that done. And to get that done, you need the state Senate and the assembly on board, and you're going to have to make concessions elsewhere to get it done too. So is her push for weakening bail reform going to undermine her push to upzone the suburbs? I don't know. I don't know how those things are going to interact. But to keep in mind how Albany works is for better and often for worse, totally unrelated policy aims are intertwined, mm -hmm. especially in budget season where you know, a New York budget is not just a budget. It is a blob of unrelated policy that's all jammed together and passed literally the last minute you know, under the cover of darkness. That's just how it's done. It's really awful. It's very anti-good government, but that's that's how it's been. Hasn't changed. So these these are questions she has to ask herself. You know, does she care enough about charter schools again to undermine some of her tougher asks from the Democratic legislature. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's very interesting. She's offered them some olive branches. Indexing minimum wage to inflation has been a big push from progressives for a long time. She's on board with that. Will that be enough if she also says, I'll, I'll do this, but you have to give me dangerousness standard so judges can you know unilaterally decide to deny someone bail? Will there be a trade on that front? I don't know. That's going to be decided probably you know over the next month or two. 
let's leave it there, Ross. That, that was super interesting. I really appreciate you joining me for that. Uh, can you let people know if they want to follow you on Substack, what's the URL for that? Yeah, so it's rossbarkin.substack.com. My name is B as in boy, A-R-K-A-N. Please subscribe. I write a lot of New York stuff. I do a lot of national stuff too. I do media criticism and cultural criticism, all kinds of things. So it's, it's a fun stop. And you, you can also see Ross from time to time in New York Magazine and in The Nation. Thank you for being with me, Ross. Thank you. If you'd like to be the first to know about upcoming podcast topics and to suggest questions for our guests, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious Newsletter. It's at joshbarrow.com. Subscribers get my newsletter. They get special access to our thoughtful, very serious community. And if you really like the podcast, if you really like the newsletter, I encourage you to become a paying subscriber because your subscription directly funds this newsletter and podcast. And we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo like mayonnaise. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back soon. <laughs>